Okay, in your Bibles this morning, the New Testament letter of Paul to Titus. Titus chapter 1. Just a moment, we're going to read from verse 10. Titus chapter 1, beginning with verse 10. Let's read. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God. But they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And that is the conclusion of our reading this morning. Last week, we learned about Titus' mission to Crete, how he was left to lead And that leadership involved particularly identifying and equipping leaders who would be able to take the fledgling church of Crete forward. We describe Titus as something of a stay-behind operative. One who is left by their government to be overrun. With the intention, in fact, that they are overrun, but this person or this organization is strategically placed behind enemy lines to counteract the efforts of the new imperial force that has overtaken that that nation. Uh, To form the core of a resistance movement. And that really is what Titus was, uh, was doing At a spiritual level, he was left in Crete. We are told, verse 5, that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. But what may be found is that there are competing motives for fighting back against the enemy. There are different visions and there are different strategies for going about fighting against the enemy. And more severely, a stay-behind operative or organization might find that those identified and equipped might themselves prove to be the enemy. What am I saying? Think for a moment about George Blake. George Blake was a Dutch refugee to the UK in World War II. Having moved from... Netherlands to the United Kingdom, um, he joined the Royal Navy and he was later recruited by MI6. After the war, he was stationed in the Far East based as a 
vice consul in Seoul, South Korea. He was tasked with gaining intelligence on the communist countries of North Korea, China, and the Soviet Far East. When the Korean People's Army of the North invaded the South and captured Seoul, Blake was taken prisoner, where he remained for three years. He was released in 1953 and welcomed in the United Kingdom as a hero. Of course, this man who had endured three years interned in an enemy imprisonment camp uh, would have been trusted, highly trusted, and regarded as someone suited to be put on the front lines of the then developing Cold War. So he was sent by MI6 to Berlin, where he was left with the job of recruiting Soviet officers as double agents. There was one problem. He himself was a double agent working for the Soviet KGB whilst working for the United Kingdom's MI6. That is to say, his main employer was the KGB, not MI6. The wrong man had been left with the job of identifying and equipping men who would undermine the enemy. The wrong man had been identified and equipped to undermine the enemy himself. In fact, he was the enemy, and the consequences would prove to be severe. In the verses that we just read a moment ago, we see some of what leaders have to deal with. And if leaders are to deal with these things, they must be in order. Their house must be in order. They themselves must be stewards of not only the Word of God, but also of themselves and their families as well as the church. The unfortunate truth of the matter is, when people are appointed to such positions, even if they've gone through various vetting procedures, they may nonetheless, because of the temptations of sin and the um, uh, weakness of the mind and rebellion against God and the devices of the enemy find themselves, in fact, doing the enemy's job for him. Why are elders needed? If we can put that to a side for a, for, for a moment. Why are elders even needed? Because if you run this risk... Wouldn't it be better to just dispense with the whole idea? I mean, perhaps someone might hear the story of, of George Blake and they might say, well, why was he needed in the first place? Why, why was his role important? Why was he even sent out there? And that might be a legitimate discussion at the sort of geopolitical level to have. But people ask those questions of the local church. Are elders needed? Are pastors needed? Are, are those that are called in the text, conversely, elders, overseers, stewards, and the catch-all term that has been settled on um, historically in English is pastor that brings all of those concepts together. Is that 
really necessary for the life of the church if it carries with it so many occupational hazards, not just for the leadership itself, but for those who are under the leadership? Is it even worth bothering with? Furthermore, why should such people, why do such people have to be men of a particularly high standard of character and scripture handling capability? Why is that important? Why does that matter so much? Why does it matter if they are good stewards of the church, their homes, themselves, and the scriptures? Well, the problems are clearly stated in the verses that we just read. The first thing that we see is character issues. Did you notice that as we were reading? There are certain people or groups of people who we are told are something. Not that they do something, but that they are something. When you say a person is something, you are making a statement about their character. You're getting at their very heart what they are, who they are. It's more than just here is a, uh, something that they do, here is something that you've heard them say, here's something that you've observed in them. But this is saying this is what they are. It is a part of their very essence and being. And in the text you will see to really make this point very emphatically clear, there are three triplets that are within the passage. The first triplet is found very early on in verse 10. There are many who are insubordinate. Not only are they insubordinate, they're empty talkers. Not only are they insubordinate and empty talkers, they are deceivers. What is insubordination? You might say, well, you know, that is what makes a person, if a person is at their very core of their character insubordinate, we have to look at what it is that causes Paul to say that. They are guilty of insubordination. But we're no closer to getting a definition. We've just defined the word using the word, which I know dictionaries sometimes do, but it's not very helpful at understanding. Insubordination is a rebellious attitude. Actions, defiant actions. Disobeying authority. So, this is a group of people. Perhaps they're operating individually. Perhaps they're operating more organizationally. But they cannot abide submitting to any authority. They, they, they will not be told what to do. They will not be told what is right. They will not be instructed, nor will they submit themselves to instruction. They will insist on their own way, their own path, but that way and that path is wrong. It is foolish, it is sinful, it is unwise, and it is wicked. And Paul makes that very, very clear. This is not a, a bold defiance, a brave defiance. This is not the defiance of which Adrian spoke last Sunday evening when he was speaking of the, the faces of Jesus. And he spoke of Jesus' face like flint. How he was so determined. How he was so defiant against the normal human emotions that might 
accompanied betrayal and eventual death, that he set his face with great determination towards Jerusalem and to the sacrifice that he would make on the cross. Now that's a good kind of insubordination. One that will not bow to lies. One that will not kneel before idols. But this insubordination is one that runs against the very heart of the gospel and against healthy church life. Furthermore, he says they're empty talkers. Well, that's worse when you have someone with a very strong will and yet there is no perceivable purpose. There's just a bunch of emptiness. Lots of words, lots of words, on and on and on, but no substance. Do do you ever have a conversation like that? I'm not trying to make it personal, but um, do you ever have a conversation and you're trying to help someone and you get a lot of stuff back as you're talking, as you're, well, you're trying to talk, you're trying to help, but it ends up becoming the person that you're trying to help monologuing. And they go on, and they go on, and then they go off over here, and then they go off over here, and then over there, on and on. But then when you do a a personal recap at the end of the conversation, when you're sort of trying to detox from all of that, you're, um, you're kind of wondering what they said. And it's not because you weren't listening. You can perhaps find for every five minutes of chatter, five seconds of substance. I think this is what they were on about. Uh, More than once, I I remember um, uh, having challenging conversations, not uh, not, not in such a way that the person felt I was being challenged. I was giving a person an ear, trying to to let them get whatever off off their chest, and and then, uh, you know, increasingly it becomes nonsense. It becomes nonsense. Walking, walk, walking, walking, hanging, hanging out. Another one time, an hour, listening to various theories about about the the shape and size of the world and how the universe is functioned, and various theories about that. I just. <sighs> Now, flashbacks, draining, draining experience. And then that, that goes off to this person and what they think and say and that person. And at the end of it, maybe five minutes of an actual argument, which was poor anyway. Sometimes I, I ask, am I wasting my time in those situations? And initially, I'll often tell myself, no. I have a pastoral responsibility to listen and to bear with, but there comes a point where enough is enough and you have to say no more. Empty talkers. Paul was very familiar with this sort of person. Titus was very familiar. It could take various forms. It could be someone who has loads of crazy ideas and they just have to share them and they want to bring you into the rabbit hole that they have descended But it can also be things like rumor. Rumors have no substance. Rumors have no no definitional, certain proof. It's whispering. 
It's stuff that the scriptures speak about again and again. It's generally focused on someone else or something else that that person really doesn't have much business talking about. Rumor. Gossip. Which is very, very common in the New Testament. In fact, Paul, when he's talking about Um, the issues Timothy will face. Similar letter, but different type issues Timothy was facing. One of the main issues was, uh, it it seems in the church at Ephesus, there was a substantial number of old ladies who were known for their gossip. And Paul says, this is unacceptable. This is wrong. And Timothy was going to have to learn how to deal with that pastorally. And the people that were going to be appointed as elders were going to have to learn how to deal with that pastorally. All talk, very little substance, very little point. No solution that is is brought about by the raising of a plethora of problems. Nothing you can sink your teeth into. Crazy ideas, random babblings, strange opinions. We've been there. We've been at the receiving end of that. And if you've not been at the receiving end of that, are are you engaged in that? Um, we, we have simply to look at the comment threads of, of uh, various things on, on social media or YouTube or whatever, and you see empty talk. It's very part and parcel of um, behavior in our cultural moment. Well, it's not just our culture. This was 2,000 years ago. It's something that sinners have done as long as they have been sinners. But deceivers... He says, that keeps getting worse, doesn't it? So there's insubordination, there's empty talkers, and there's deceivers. These are people who are, it's not that their, their mouths are empty because their heads are kind of empty as well, and there's just this void that's being filled with all sorts of worthless information that is then being shared and distracting from the point, which is Jesus. But there are people who are actively leading other people astray, personally, pastorally, in their teaching, and also in the image that they project of themselves. Character issues. They are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers. That's the first triplet. But there's another triplet. Uh, See that a bit later in, in the text? Verse 12, Paul very strategically is talking about the culture in which Titus will find himself and not not going to rely on on his own words or his own opinion. He he summons one of the Cretans to speak about themselves. A very useful tactic if you're trying to persuade someone of something that's less than flattering. Very useful to quote them or someone who is truly representative of them. In this case, it is a a philosopher, poet, self-styled seer, a man, in fact, who reportedly fell asleep in um, uh, the cave of Zeus, who uh, woke up many years later and apparently had this gift of seeing. That is what they said about him, at least. Epimenides, and Epimenides um, wrote the quoted words, that Paul cites here six to seven hundred years before Paul writes them. So he was well known. 
His perspective is well known. And these things were so ingrained in Cretan culture that six to 700 years after Epimenides was talking about Cretans in this way, Paul was able to talk about Cretans in this way. What does he say? Cretans, verse 12, are always liars, always evil beasts, always lazy gluttons. Just branching off slightly, Epimenides was a Cretan. Do, 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 you see, do you see a problem that some people potentially have raised? The very philosophical types have said, Epimenides is a Cretan. And so there's actually something called the um, uh, Epimenides paradox, which says, all Cretans are liars, but he himself is a Cretan. So he is a liar. So perhaps all Cretans are honest. But he is a Cretan. And he says that they are all liars. So they are all liars because he is honest. But he is a Cretan. So he too is a liar. So perhaps, and it just goes on and on and on. And it gets a bit ridiculous. Uh, but the point is, Paul is quoting a Cretan's estimation of Cretan culture. People who, it could generally be said, are characterized by deceit, by debauchery, and by self-destructive tendencies, and other destructive tendencies. They are liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. There's one other triplet that you need to see in this passage. Go to verse 16. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are, another character statement, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. What does it mean to be detestable? Anyone? Detestable. You're easy to dislike. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. Detestable, easy to dislike. I, I dislike this person immediately. I've known them for five seconds, and I, um, I've enjoyed none of them. One of those characters. Deserving, in fact. It's worse than that. It's deserve They are detestable. So it's not just subjectively, I think that person's detestable, or I find that person detestable. But it's, it's rather, they are detestable, objectively, from the apostolic Vantage point of one inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, they are detestable, deserving of intense dislike. It's a word that is, this will become more significant in just a few moments. It is used to describe unclean animals as well as idols in the Torah. Detestable. The detestable things. Okay, just keep that in your mind for a second because we will circle back. They are disobedient. That's what it says on the 10. They don't obey. Bear that in mind. We will come back to it. They are unfit for any good work. That is to say they're disqualified from leadership. They are contrasted 
with those who are known for their good works. Paul has talked about those who should be appointed as elders, and now he's contrasting with those who most definitely should not be. So there are character issues. That's the type of stuff that elders have to deal with. They must respond to these things. Character issues. But furthermore, they also need to be ready to respond to content issues. And this is where what I was just saying becomes a little more significant. The content issues that Titus is facing, you might think, have to do with Greek mythology. Although this, these are the days of the Roman Empire, uh, the, the, the Roman Empire has effectively borrowed what they liked from Greek culture and rebranded it, renamed it, restyled it in various ways. But Crete was an island. They have an island mentality. They have their own preserved culture. Though they are under the auspices of the Roman Empire, they nonetheless are Cretans and they have creed and belief. They're not suddenly going to be calling their uh, god Zeus, Jupiter. It, it's Zeus. And so they're going to, and he came from Crete. And so they're going to keep um, uh, honoring him. Well, you might think that, but that actually, bizarrely enough, is not the situation that the, the churches in Crete were facing. What they were facing, there may have been some of that. People always bring a little something with them. But what they were primarily facing was false teaching that was very common in the New Testament time of merging Jewish belief and practice with Christian belief and practice in a way that disqualified Greek worshipers of Jesus from actually being recognized as such. So you have to, you have to fulfill the laws of the Old Covenant. We actually read something about this in the um, uh, book of Acts, some of these issues, some of these politics. Very significantly, one of the main things that this uh, turned on was circumcision. And we see the Apostle Paul has two men that he's left in different places to serve, different churches, Different backgrounds, different people. They're ministering to different people. Think about Timothy and Titus for just a moment. We read in the book of Acts that, that Paul actually went with Timothy as a young man, but nonetheless a grown man, and saw to it that he was circumcised. Because he wasn't, because his dad was a Greek. But Timothy was going to be working with Jews. And it's not that... You need to do this so that you will be accepted as a Christian. But rather, you need to do this if you're working with Jews so that they actually listen to you as one of them. Conversely, Paul did not see to it that Titus was circumcised. Why? Because Titus was working with Greeks and it didn't matter. That wasn't the issue. In fact, it might have been more advantageous that he not be because of the false gospel that was saying you have to be. And that's just one of the issues that they were talking about in that time. There were food laws. There, there, there were customs as to worship and, and the setting aside of Saturday as the Sabbath day by the Jews was maintained by Jewish believers, but people leaving that 
um, uh, uh, the, the um, uh, idolatrous systems of, of the Gentiles, they, they were not adhering to Saturday Sabbath at all. Nor was there any expect, expectation that they do. Rather, the expectation of followers of Jesus was that they would gather on resurrection morning, which was Sunday. And so they would gather the first day of the week. We see that pattern established in the book of Acts. And, well, Jewish believers were more than welcome to continue gathering together on, on uh, the Saturday Sabbath. Um, on the Lord's Day, as it came to be called, People from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds would gather and worship Jesus to remember that he's risen from the dead. But here are some people saying, well, we didn't see you yesterday. Did, did you go for a walk? Did, how, how long was that walk? Did you, uh, did you do any work? You went to the market on the Sabbath. All of these type things. And they're being routinely guilt-tripped for their non-Sabbath adherence. These are things that were very common and they are addressed many times in many places in the New Testament. Titus had them as well. And that's why Paul, writing to, to Titus, says, There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. And you're thinking, oh, these are the, the irreligious types or the secular types or the pagan types. Actually not. He says, especially those of the circumcision party. That is, not a party. It's not very fun. Um, those, those who are forming this political attachment, detachment within the church. They're, they're, they're branching off over here doing their own thing. And that thing is highly legalistic and damaging and distracting to those who simply wish to follow Jesus. Not only that, it's upsetting, he says, whole families. They are, they are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Their message is primarily one that focuses on what is detestable, what is unclean, what is idolatrous. And yet their eyes are not looking at Jesus. And so Paul says of them that they are detestable. They're focused on, you know, I, I just don't like that the church has a fellowship meal and some of the guys are grilling sausages afterwards. And it's pork that's detestable. I can't have fellowship with them. Well, if you think that this is just all ancient history, it's not... We, we had an individual uh, even last year who came one time and uh, they were offended by a message that disparaged the Pharisees. I believe that that message was very on point, um, but the, um, the, apparently it was um, considered anti-Semitic. Now, I know there are legitimate conversations that must be had in our culture today about that. Absolutely. But this particular message was simply focused on the scriptural uh, situation. And actually, I thought it was fairly charitable and balanced towards the Pharisees in any case. Said individual continued to talk with, with me and found out that um, my, my, uh, my brother is married to uh, a Jewish follower of Jesus. And um, that, was, that was unacceptable for him. 
Um, that's just, no, no. They should not be married. It's too late now. I guess the damage has been done. But um, he, he uh, really went on about how that was, that was a mixed marriage that was not pleasing before the Lord. Because the people of Israel are, um, are uh, a light to the nations. And that means they need to be completely separate from the nations, which means they should not marry people from the nations. And carry on the conversation and talking about rhythms of church life. And we did address our um, monthly uh, summer barbecues. And uh, I, I, I was trying to be sensitive as to see where this man's comfort zone was. And um, he said, well, I, I don't, I don't um, you can eat whatever you want, but I, I, will, I will not be. And I said, well, that's fine. That's absolutely fair. That's absolutely acceptable. Um, and then I, I, I thought we had arrived at a place of agreement. You do you and love one another, serve one another, let other people work out their own diets. Uh, but then I was on the receiving end of, of a, a monologue about how um, uh, pork um, uh, is, is vile and disgusting and how it um, uh, reminds him of the smell of burning human flesh from his time as a soldier and just very disgusting and grotesque things that were clearly meant to, to um, turn me to, to his side. And um, I, uh, the end of that month... Uh, rejoiced as I stood out turning the, the meat on the grill in my freedom in Christ. Um, we, we, have, we, have to, we have to put to death silliness, right? If you have a personal perspective or preference or taste, Paul elsewhere says that's absolutely okay. But don't be building barriers that Jesus has torn down at the cross. It's a false gospel. It goes deeper than sanctification by works. The on, uh, ongoing process. of And they're like, okay, well, you're a Christian, but you're not a good Christian because this is not really in line in your life. Their message was, that's bad enough. Their message was, you are not saved until this is in order. You are not right with God until this is in order. You do not stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You do not have union with Jesus Christ. You are not reconciled to God because the guys aren't circumcised and um, everyone is just kind of doing their own thing when it comes to diet and uh, Sabbath day. That's a false gospel. And he, he says that they're teaching for shameful gain. He doesn't go into that. Were they doing this to build an audience? And with that audience to get money, to get attention, to get power, to get authority? That's the only way that you could interpret that. They are teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. And note, this, this is something you have to be watch out for. Whenever you hear someone saying something that seems a bit weird, that seems a bit off, Test it according to the Word of God. And there's a good chance that if it's something that people haven't been saying for 2,000 years of Christian history, it has been formulated specifically to find a, a, a gap in the market, as it were. The marketplace of ideas and faith. So there's someone out here who's dissatisfied. There's someone out here who's new and immature and confused. So the best thing to do is to self-publish a book that outlines some crazy idea that no one has said for like 2,000 years. 
and then sell on top of that the, uh, the, the study package that will go with it. That, that, that's, you know, how they, they get you. And, and it becomes like some sort of um, pyramid scheme of faith where you're always climbing the, the ladder, always get it toward the top, but never at the top. He says that, that um, they're devoting themselves to Jewish myths. Now, some people have looked at this, and again, perhaps my friend last year would have struggled with this, this message um, uh, because um, of Jewish myths. You could take that personally. Seems like an assault on something that people believe. Remember, people, that Paul was a Jew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is not bigotry. This is not prejudice. This is about getting the gospel right. And the things that they've added to the law, the, the Midrashim that have been added to the, what we call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, all of these teachings, some of which are very bizarre. Many of which are, if you were to explore contemporary Judaism, it's only gotten worse since Paul was writing. Stranger and stranger things that get said, they're not from the Scriptures. And I've shared very openly and um, candidly my um, uh, experiences in Sanford Hill when we first uh, moved to this country and living there. Uh, very Jewish community, Hasidic Jewish community, and my deep and abiding love for those people. And I am happy in a free nation for them to do and believe as they see fit. But it, the gospel is what will save. Jesus is who saves. And when you start mixing nonsense with the gospel, you end up with something false. The good news is that Jesus Christ lived the life we could not live, died the death we deserve to die in our place, and is risen. And we, by simply believing in Him and taking hold of the undeserved grace of God extended to us, we can have eternal life. And walk in newness of life, pursuing justice and kindness and humility before God. All great stuff. But these people are turning their eyes from Jesus. They're devoting themselves to myths. He says they're devoting themselves to the commands of people who turn away from the truth. They're listening to people who actually don't believe in Jesus. And they're trying to marry up the message of people who have rejected Jesus with people who have pro professed faith in Jesus and trying to somehow bring them together and they don't mix. Content issues. That is why Paul says they are detestable. Because he's, he's appealing to their going around telling people they're detestable. These, this crew, this party, they're saying, you're detest no, you're not detestable. They're detestable. Unclean animals and idols, that's where they are. It's, it's, it's a rhetorical device, I hope you see it, that, that makes the impact of his point. 
They're going around talking about how disobedient other people are. Paul says their message is of, is of obedience, but they themselves are the ones who are disobeying. They're talking about who is fit for good works, but they themselves are unfit for any good work. Content issues. But then finally, I need you to see conduct issues. We have some character issues. This is who they are. We have content issues. This is what they believe. And then there's conduct issues, which is the outflow of that quite naturally. Who they are and what they believe will connect together to produce how they live. And so he says they profess to know God, verse 16, but they deny Him by their works. Now it's one thing when it's the culture. And it was the Cretan culture. It was the, the Gentile culture of, of Crete. And that's why, because there's this interplay of stuff about Gentile Cretan culture with sort of a Judaizing false belief that we, we, we can get confused perhaps. But Cicero uh, wrote in his Republic about Crete. Moral principles are so divergent that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. Bolivius wrote in his histories that it was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. But there were professing Christians who were not living righteous lives. When professing Christians look more like the culture than like Christ, something has gone very wrong. And not only professing Christians who were looking more like the culture than like Christ, but these were people, some of them had been through the pipeline of Judaism first. They weren't even Gentiles to start with. They had some framework of, of one God and one God morality. But um, no, that was, not, that was not what was happening at this point in their lives. Now the necessary response to, to the, these, these conduct issues combined with their content and character issues is what? How do you respond when, when people are believing and behaving so aberrantly away from the good news of the Gospel? Well, he says they must be silenced. Verse 11. They must be silenced. And how do you silence them? Well, this is, this is why it's so important that he be a steward of the Word. Verse 9, where we were last week. He must hold firm to the trustworthy Word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. He can't stand in himself. He can't stand in his own wisdom. He can't stand in his own power. He has to rely on the Word of God, but applying the Word of God in the power of God to the people of God, false teaching will be silenced. Now that's not to say they won't stop talking, that they're going to stop talking. They probably won't. Some of them might. But they, later he says that you, you need to reject them. So there's church disciplinary processes for people like this who are actually within the churches. 
at this point, he's saying, silence people who are going around upsetting whole families in your churches. How do you do that? By preaching the Word of God. Because those families who are upset, they... They will find, it's, it's not for the false teachers, it's for those families. They will find in the Word of God something soothing, something refreshing, something liberating, something healing. They'll realize, wait a second, this is the gospel message. We're seeing Jesus, not, not myths that we, we don't even understand why we're supposed to believe in those things. Because the law and the prophets don't even figure into that stuff. They must be silenced, and, and uh, how, do we, how do we do that if, if simply preaching doesn't work? Proclaiming the Word of God doesn't work? Well, that, that's where you have to actually apply the Word of God powerfully, personally, directly. And sometimes that requires something in the congregation that's called out, something in a church meeting that's called out, sometimes a one-to-one Rebuke them sharply. There are different scenarios that, that have to be called upon. But he says rebuke them sharply. That has with it force, doesn't it? A sharp rebuke is one that other people might find jarring. You might rebuke someone sharply and, and someone else who's watching might, might be thinking, oh, they went a bit too strong on that. Someone might pull you aside and say, oh, I don't, I don't know, but that was, that, was, that was pretty heavy. But sometimes, not always, sometimes that's needed, but sometimes that the ones that God has appointed particularly are the ones who are in a place as elders to go to someone and tell them, you're wrong. You're in sin. And later, in chapter 2, you'll see where basically the elder has to tell, tell them to get out. Go. You are not welcome here with that belief, with those attitudes and actions. Is this easy? Absolutely not. It's very challenging. Because elders are like anyone else. They want to be liked. Don't ever believe someone who says they don't want to be like that. I don't care what people think about me. Normally, it's the person who says that, actually, that's the worst. I don't care what people think about me. They're deeply insecure. That's why they've even raised that. You do care. That's why you're just telling yourself that. Elders want to be liked, they don't want to be seen as angry because that's what happens. A, a sharp rebuke. What does that land you with? Someone that does the sort of fake dismay face. You're, you're such an angry pastor. From experience. Years later, a pastor will remember being told, you're such an angry man. Why? Because someone was way off base and rebuked sharply in compliance with the word of the Lord. It's not easy. Sometimes you, you begin to second guess, third guess, fourth. You start thinking maybe, maybe, I, maybe I should have just left it at rebuke 
before I went to Sharply. Or maybe, maybe I skipped instruction and correction and just made my way straight to rebuke. And you start weighing it all up. And we, we have to go through that process. That's important for our humility before the Lord. But there's a time when you are called upon in the Word of God, standing in the power of God with the authority not of yourself, but of God through His Word to rebuke sharply. Of course, some people abuse this. Just because someone's abusing it does not mean that you, you, you dispense with it altogether. We've seen the videos. Some people may have seen things like that in person where there's a lineup in the church. And I remember the lineup of people that were knelt before the self-ascribed apostle. And um, uh, the woman was answering him and he backhanded her, shouting at her. You are a demon. I remember him saying, Michael's nodding his head. He knows exactly the video I'm talking about. This passage is not a license for pastors to go around calling everyone that they have a slight issue with detestable uh, or any of the other words that the Apostle Paul uses. This is not a license for physical assault or abuse. This is not a license for elders misbehaving. When we rebuke sharply, it should be with a broken heart, one which is, which is humbled before the Lord, one which is aware that we have been on the receiving end of such rebukes ourselves through Scripture. And it's not for the joy of the rebuke, but it's for the glory of God in saving someone from the edge of the cliff they're about to go over. How does one do this effectively if they're not participating in Christ-likeness? How, how does one rebuke sharply if they themselves are participating in sub-Christian cultural norms? That is why the character of the elder matters. That is why he must be a good steward of himself of His family, of the church, of the Word. Because how can He speak to these things if He Himself is doing them? What if someone is sound in faith but not in their life? What good is their faith to the ones He's, he's rebuking? What if someone is sound in some areas of their life but not in others and their faith is definitely not in the right place? Why are they even talking? Why are they in that position? The, at the beginning of the passage, do you see that word? For. The for at the beginning of the passage most naturally relates immediately to being a steward of the Word. We've already established that. We talked about it last week. But what about the wider issues? Do they not absolutely relate? And what about the challenge of identifying any leaders to begin with? Thus he says, appoint elders in every town as I directed you if anyone is above reproach. If anyone might also be found to be stated for, that is to say, because there are many who are insubordinate. So be careful who you appoint as an elder because you might end up appointing one of these guys. 
Why? Because they have loud mouths. Because they're confident. Because they have charisma. Because they know how to build a following. It's not worth it. We cannot dispense with the biblical qualifications for leadership simply for the sake of someone we find more compelling. I began with the story of George Blake. And I wanted to tell that story because I think we, we, we can see it illustrating care in who we recognize as elders and who we go to for spiritual leadership, albeit it's from a completely different part of, of life. For nine years after he was stationed in Berlin, George Blake worked for MI6 in Berlin. He became a highly valued asset, but not to MI6, to the Soviet regime. In a TV interview much later, he claimed to have betrayed 500 British agents. He was reportedly responsible for destroying most of MI6's operations in Eastern Europe. When he was eventually discovered, captured, tried, and found guilty, he was given the longest non-life sentence handed down by a British court, 42 years in prison. It was reported at the time by newspapers that this was one year for every agent who was killed after he had betrayed them. 42. He, even his Soviet bosses, would express that he was always in denial about the outcome of those betrayals. He refused to believe that the people he had betrayed were actually killed. And of course, all they could do was let him believe whatever lies he told himself to justify it. He later escaped from prison. He made his way to Moscow where he continued to work for the Secret Service into old age. And if you think this is all just history, he only died three years ago. After which he was praised by Vladimir Putin and buried with military honors. The wrong man had been left with the job of identifying and equipping men who would undermine the enemy. The wrong man had been identified and equipped to undermine the enemy. He was the enemy. Stories like this underscore the vital importance of trusting in Jesus Christ, lest we despair and give up. But also finding in Christ not only our Savior, but the greatest example of stewardship. We might be minded to say, well, is it worth even trying? Paul didn't take that approach. He said, for this reason, I left you on Crete to appoint elders. So we must seek elders. We must appoint elders. And we must ask of them, always holding them to this standard. Are our leaders trusting in Christ? Are our leaders pointing us to Christ? Or are they adding to the gospel? Are they bearing the fruit of Christ's likeness in their own lives? Are they pointing you continually to Christ in what they say and in what they do. At stake is not only the health of the church, but the faithful proclamation of the gospel. What if leaders are undermining the gospel in what they say or do? What if they're undermining the gospel in their proclaimed beliefs and practiced behavior? We can't let it get to that. And so we must submit ourselves to Jesus with care, seek Christ-proclaiming, Christ-like leaders.
for the church. Let's pray. Lord, we feel the weight of this task, this need, if anyone. And then we think about how narrow the choices can be. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Lord, protect us from them. Protect us from them in leadership. Protect us from them in membership. Protect us from them as a church and as individuals. In Jesus' name, amen.